2: Tortoise.
1: Hello, it's James. It's Monday the 11th of December. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting.
2: Rishi Sunak will face the Covid inquiry today while his MPs decide whether to block or back his Rwanda plan.
0: The head of the UN in Gaza, in his strongest statement yet, described the situation there as the worst he's ever seen. Warning of a total humanitarian collapse inside the territory.
2: The president of the University of Pennsylvania resigned. Golden Globe nominations are officially in. Is it a
0: Barbenheimer Golden Globes is, after all? It is a Barbenheimer morning. Nigel oh, Farage so?
2: ended his time in the jungle in third place after making the final of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here.
1: To help make sense of what's going on, I'm joined by Tortoise's Deputy Editor, Giles Wattel. Hello. Hello. Out of interest, Giles, if you were Rishi Sunak and you were excited to welcome Nigel Farage back from the outback, would you offer him a chance to run as a Conservative in next year's general election?
3: On balance, no. The argument for yes would be keep him in the tent uh, or bring him into the tent, rather than having pissing on the tent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wouldn't want to be the Prime Minister who, after so many failed attempts by Farage to get a seat in Parliament, was the one who enabled it to happen.
1: I'm also joined by Chloe hodge matheo mm. who has gone to Denmark to report on Syria. Yep. Uh, so what's that story?
2: So it's basically a story about how uh, Assad, now he's won the war in Syria pretty much, how he's consolidating his power and how he is reaching out to friends and in influential place, places to help him consolidate that power.
1: It, it's, you know, the odd thing is when Charles and I worked at the Times, we wrote a leader together, headlined, after Assad. Such was the confidence a decade or so ago that there was only one way that war would end. And so this is for the slow newscast, right? That's right, yeah. So Assad, the rubble king, I think it's called, actually tells you a story that's less about rubble and more about being the king, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 the strength of his position is something we're all underestimating.
2: That's true. He's got some leverage against the countries in the region, so namely refugees, but also Syria has quietly... Uh, behind the scenes, we haven't noticed, become a massive narco state. And it's causing a massive headache for, for countries in the region. So he's using the issue of refugees and the drugs trade to push his position and, and basically get a seat back at the table with Arab nations. But internally in, in Syria, he's also changing the landscape. He's knocking down Huge bits of Damascus and planning to rebuild a kind of Dubai-style city uh, on on the ashes of this war-torn city.
1: It's also an incredible story, among other things, about our attention and our attention span, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is... When I talk to people about Syria, they're like, what? This is three conflicts ago now. What are you talking about? Everyone's moved on, but of course, the bombs are still dropping on Idlib. It's not completely over. Assad only has control of 70% of the country. There's still 30%. That's a war.
1: Incredible story, isn't it, really? An incredibly difficult one to... Wrangle with how you keep sight of Israel, Gaza, and Ukraine, and Syria, and and and. Um, perhaps we'll get into some of that uh, in today's news meeting. And I'm delighted that Chris Morris, who I'm proud to say I worked with at the BBC and is now the chief executive of Full Fact, uh, the great, great fact-checking organisation. I should say I'm a trustee, so I'm not only saying that because of that, but I do think it's. Uh, one of the forces of good in a complicated and muddled world. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. I know you're down the line. It's good to have you with us.
0: Yeah, morning, James.
1: Um, and, And Chris, what do you think, just before we get into choices of stories, what do you think? You've taken over full fact at exactly the moment where I think the whole idea of fact and narrative has become more contested than ever. I'm thinking particularly in the context of the Middle East, but you can feel it coming in US politics and UK politics too. So have you come into full fact with a sense of what the job is?
0: When full fact started in about 2010, I think the question it was trying to answer then was, you know, why is this person lying to me? I know Jeremy Paxman had a slightly fruitier version of that sentence. (laughs) But the question we're trying to address now is, can I believe anything I read or see or hear anywhere? So I think it's just the breadth of of the challenge which has changed uh, and that's been increased by generative AI and um, so I think a lot of the work we're going to do is to think about where in the process we best fit because at the moment what fact-checking kind of does is wait for bad information to emerge and then fact-check it. Should we actually be saying can we be some of the people that input information into large language models and therefore make sure that good information emerges in the first place from the generative AI, which, let's face it, is going to be creating probably 90% of all new media within a couple of years. So I think it's part of what we need to do is work out where in the system we can have the greatest impact. There's something circular about this. When I started at the FT,
1: I remember being told that the reason the Financial Times first started printing was that in the city, particularly down in the docks, there was just so much rumour and people wanted to get some sense of what was actually true or as close as they could and I suppose there's an interesting thing for journalism which is in a world in which it's not just people spreading lies and misinformation but the whole ecosystem of fact in question actually there's a big role for journalism once again which is to say this is validated this has been checked and proven to be as far as we know true.
0: Yeah and and yeah, critics of fact-checking almost like want to put it in opposition to journalism, but of course it's not in opposition to journalism at all. It's just another journalistic tool. Uh, and those critics would say, oh, the fact-checkers are trying to tell us what to think and to close down debate. And my perspective, you would not be surprised to hear this, is quite the opposite. We are robustly in favour of free speech. But the point is to have the political debates on the urgent issues of the day that we need to have there has to be some shared understanding of a basic body of evidence which stands up to statistical scrutiny. Yeah. Otherwise, the debates are meaningless. And, yeah. and we do get to a point where no one believes anything. And if we do get to that point, then you've got to start to ask what's left of liberal democracy. So I think you know one of the reasons I joined Full Fact is, as you say, this is a critical moment for these issues. And I think it's really, really
1: important. Well, let's get stuck into the week of December the 11th. What we think are the stories of the week as we go into
0: it. Chris, why don't you go first? Long story short, what's yours? Well, I'm going for the final days of COP28. It may look like a baffling negotiation, but it is, in the end, about the future of our planet and about the transformation of our economy. So, you know, when you take the long view, it's not just the most important story of the week, it's probably the most important story. Of the first half of the twenty-first century, it's difficult to get into through a, a a difficult negotiation at a summit that no one quite understands. But the bigger picture which surrounds it is absolutely critical, and this is one of the moments I think that you do have to pay attention to it. Chloe, what's yours?
2: It's about President Zelensky's efforts to re-energize those suffering from Ukraine
1: fatigue. And um, Charles, what's yours? Elite American anti-Semitism or accusations thereof well why don't we start there we're talking about harvard and upenn UPenn UPenn. right so why don't we start there will you just give us a quick new reader start here what exactly has happened who's accused of what and what's happened as a result very briefly last week at a congressional hearing the presidents of three
3: top ivy league universities upenn harvard mit those are elizabeth mcgill claudine gay and sally cornbluth respectively were unable to answer unequivocally a question from a republican uh, congressional representative from New York state which was do calls for genocide of the jews violate your campus codes of conduct on bullying or harassment none of the three were able to say simply yes They were given multiple opportunities to do so and were urged to reply in one word. Instead, they all gave versions of its context dependent. The clip went viral. By the end of the week, all three were under great pressure. They tried to limit the damage. On Saturday, however, Elizabeth McGill and the chairman of UPenn both resigned. Claudine Gay and Sally Kornbluth remain in post but under pressure. And at least $100 million planned donation, this one to UPenn, uh, has been threatened with withdrawal. Uh, And that is the state of things now.
1: Charles, can we just do this in a few steps? So just go back to the congressional hearing and the question, because the question was put yes or no. Is this a breach of your codes of conduct, as you say, bullying and harassment, yes or no? calls for genocide of the Jews. Is that breach of bullying and harassment rules, yes or no? And I genuinely didn't understand why that was such a difficult question, and it felt as though each of them must have been briefed by a lawyer. There must be something in the rules that explains why they all said the same thing. They all said it's a matter of context, it's, you know, context-dependent. And they seemed to suggest that if you were threatening an individual... That was a conduct issue. But if you were making a blanket statement... Then,
3: however odious,
1: it was protected by free
3: speech rules. Is that what they were saying? Uh, That was part of it, I think. And the other part, um, when they came back to this refrain, context-dependent, what they were thinking in the back of their minds was partly that in some but not all of the cases of alleged uh, calls for genocide of the Jews those weren't the words being used. It was words or slogans like from the river to the sea, which obviously can be interpreted as having genocidal intent. But separate issue, but I think related, uh, we're dealing with a generation of campus protesters, many of whom don't understand quite what they're saying.
1: Uh, And then how much of this is really understanding the context of an argument about US universities and campuses, i.e. the politicization of those campuses. I mean, obviously, university campuses have always had a political bent that's often, you know, out of step with the establishment. That's one of the things they're there to do. But is it the case that this is about something more, the way in which the right sees the left and the left's hold on university campuses? What's going on there?
3: I'm not sure that it's new because Alan Bloom wrote The Closing of the American Mind some time ago. um, Which said what? That... Um, Let me translate this um, for 2023, that uh, woke sensibilities were congealing free thought on American campuses. Chloe, what do
1: you think of this story?
2: Well, I I saw the clip, actually, over the weekend. And my first thought was that it was a trick question because it's talking about bullying and harassment policy. And I wondered whether that was very niche and that they were forced to answer in that way. If they were being asked, is it unacceptable? For somebody to call for the genocide of Jews, they might have answered differently. I think bullying harassment policy is probably very, very niche and very specific. I wondered if the question was kind of put in the wrong way, whether they should have said, actually, it's unacceptable. But when it comes to bullying and harassment policy, which is very specific... It, you know, I don't know what the bullying and harassment policy is. But, but hold on. I wondered whether it was a... Hang on,
1: if you were in front of Congress and yeah. it was being asked you that question and you were being delivered, what would you have said?
2: I would have said something like, if you're asking me if it's unacceptable, if you're asking me whether it's a disciplinary action, yes. Is it in breach of specific bullying and harassment policy? I don't know because I don't know what the wording of that particular but policy none of them is. did that. No, and that was weird. I did think it was weird that they didn't come back and say something like that. They used exactly the same language. But, but let Let's get into
1: for a moment the reason why this is i think such a big story is it's about the point that chris was just making around not facts and freedom of speech but around power and freedom of speech around perceptions of who has power and who doesn't who's been excluded from the narrative and uh, and who whose voices need to be heard and there's clearly something going on on american campuses where the narrative around power is affecting the perceptions of those rights. Those things seem to be in conflict with each other.
2: I think that's probably true. And I think that's probably a wider issue when it comes to this particular debate that, you know, Jews around the world are seen to be people who are in power, they're not seem to be a minority that's downtrodden in some way, as some other minorities are. Um, and, and, And that, has been an issue everywhere, I think, when it comes to these protests and, and, and Jews feeling that anti-Semitism is ramping up massively. Chris, what do you think
0: of it? I, I think Chloe's right. I think, in fact, it was probably a bit of a gotcha question. Whenever you are asked to answer a question in one word, yes or no, my advice would be beware. Uh, but, you know, these are the leaders of major American universities and never mind the context of bullying, it seems to me that appearing to fail to condemn unequivocally uh, calls for genocide is a monumental misjudgment. So it's not surprising to me that they're under pressure. But but I guess my point to you, Chris, is about a, a bigger issue, which is it's one thing
1: for them to have failed to answer a question, which I think is a simple moral question, and they failed. It's another thing to say, even if you're in a position of authority and you have political responsibilities not to be able to articulate the values of your institution, that's another failure. But there's a more complicated thing going on here, which is the way in which progressive institutions are dealing with what feels like a much, much more difficult issue, namely the idea that rights have not necessarily ensured the pace or the quality of change that many people who feel excluded from the economy, excluded from society, and as a result of which there's an argument here between, if you like, the crowd, the volume of voices, and the law, the, the, the rights of people. And they're not entirely aligned. And what I hear when I hear those you know university or those college leaders, it's people trying to deal with the voices on campus uh, that are passionate. And and I suppose that's the reason why I'm interested in your point of view, because this is not about, as I said, fact and freedom of speech. It seems to me about power and freedom of speech.
0: Yeah, I think it's partly about whether university administrators are, if you like, frightened of upsetting their student bodies, which, mm. which they shouldn't be. Uh, but it's also, I think, one of the grim but inevitable consequences of an age in which there are a million narratives about everything. Um, there is, It's so difficult to find a settled truth. Now, when that strays into an issue such as genocide, that for me is pretty disturbing. But I think the point is that there is always uh, another version of reality, which you can find uh, within seconds by clicking on the internet. And I think that, in some way, for many people, has distorted the way they analyse fact and fiction.
1: All right, well, let's let's come back to this. There is something really interesting going on with the way in which the situation in Israel and Gaza is just spilling into things that you just didn't expect. It's obviously, you know, someone described it as a wrecking ball of the Labour Party. Didn't expect it to rebound in that way. You certainly didn't expect it to land on campuses in this way. Um, And one of the things that's been going on over the weekend which I imagine is where you're going, is Ukraine. Yeah. And war weariness, not just Ukraine fatigue, but a kind of congressional fed-upness with...
2: Wars everywhere. Wars everywhere.
1: So just talk us through that story and how you see it.
2: So so uh, tomorrow, President Zelensky is preparing to go to Washington, D.C. He's been invited by President Biden, who is trying to rescue a $60 billion uh, US defence aid package to Ukraine, but also to Israel and Taiwan and other countries, which has been blocked by the Senate, was blocked last week. Um, uh, you know, the US has given billions and billions in aid to military funding to Ukraine, but it's getting harder and harder to get this squeeze this money out of Congress as the war goes on. Um, and of course, from Zelensky's perspective, Ukraine is in within weeks of running out of ammunition. So he's really got to work his stuff when he goes and meets congressional leaders and senators this week. Um, at the same time, interestingly, the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing, pretty influential right-wing think tank, is uh, running a two-day event on Ukraine. Um, they're going to have closed-door meetings, presumably um, meetings on how to block this funding going to Ukraine. And interestingly, allies of Viktor Orban, the Hungarian president, are flying over for that um, Heritage Foundation summit. Um Viktor Orban has been a very vocal opponent to the funding of the war in Ukraine, which brings me neatly to what's happening on this side of the pond, because on Thursday in Brussels, there's a Ukraine summit in which the 27 EU leaders are deciding on a 50 billion uh, euro package of financial aid, um, including 20 billion in weapons funding for Ukraine. And of course, Again, Hungary and the the right bloc in Europe is going to be putting up oppositions to that. And then uh, also this week, are formal EU accession talks, likely again to be blocked by Hungary about whether or not Ukraine can join the EU. Um, And the European Commission is also looking to approve a proposal which would allow Russian assets that were frozen under sanctions to be used to fund the
1: war in Ukraine. Is this, Charles? where are we at with this? Is this one of these moments where the real story is exactly as um, Chloe says, things not happening, i.e. Washington's support for Ukraine not being as full-throated or generous as it was, Uh, Zelensky's pushback against Russia not achieving its war aims, in a sense the world not paying attention to Ukraine... Are we missing something that it's slipping? It does feel as if it's slipping, but I think below the slippage, below those
3: headlines, I I think it's too soon to say that Western resolve on Ukraine's behalf is is ebbing. It is extremely dangerous strategically, as you say. They're running out of ammunition, and at the same time, Russia, as Putin boasted just at the weekend, is building up. They they it's a big country they have a war economy but a couple of things uh the that 61 billion dollar package still has very considerable bipartisan support it's actually more generous towards ukraine than biden than the administration asked for some of the uh, uh republican uh supporters of aid to ukraine added stuff in there the sticking point is the price that Republicans are insisting upon for their support, which is a deal on a security deal on the US Mexican border. The Ukrainians who we've been talking to for today's maker, believe it's straightforward. Just get a border deal done and we've got our aid. That's a, that's a very big if, though. I think um, the two sides in Washington are a long way apart on agreeing terms for uh, more security for the for the border because the Democrats with reason insist it 's complicated if that 's got to be combined with reform of immigration policy e- equally, the scale of the European package, though it 's stalled, is very big. What you see there behind that fifty billion number is Germany realizing we 've got to step up we 've got to think collectively about a world with Trump. At the end of next year.
1: You know, it's interesting, Chloe. I, uh, over the weekend, I was talking to a couple of Americans, and this was all about Israel Gaza. And I was relaying what we'd heard in a thinking someone setting out look, there are only three ways this thing ends. One is that Hamas surrenders, the other is all the hostages are returned, or the third is that the US imposes some settlement. And the first two of those are extremely unlikely and hard to achieve, and the third, viable. And it was striking to me that on the one hand, in that context, what they were saying was there is a way through here, which is the United States, A, goes to the Arab uh, countries and says, look, you need to put in the funding to secure the economy of Gaza, $10 billion or so. You need to put in the security apparatus so you take responsibility for Gaza's security. And we are going to have to go and essentially engineer the removal of Netanyahu. We're going to have to start signalling that Netanyahu can't be worked with and enable a process which probably ends up, you know, not with your dream scenario, but with someone like Benny Gantz. And it struck me, just listening to you about Ukraine, that we're in the same position in Israel-Gaza as we are in Ukraine, which is we're not in a multipolar world. We're in much more of a unipolar world where Washington is really deciding these things and we're about to tip into an election year 2024 where everything goes through the lens of what's the domestic implications of this for the Biden re-election campaign before we work out what's best for Ukraine or Israel Palestine it's a you know it's difficult when you realize that the people with the authority to do something are essentially in, locked into their own
2: game yeah, their own political
1: yeah. psychodrama yeah
2: yeah i mean i think that's absolutely true and and in a way i feel like there's a war going on on the battlefield which is pretty much in a stalemate at the moment and most people agree you know ukraine uh, russia there's not going to be any major changes nobody's going to win that war in the ne- at least in the first part of uh, 2024 but there's this other war that's going on in Russia, because they have, they have, they're still having massive losses. They're they're losing the same numbers on the battlefront that they're recruiting on a daily basis, and that just feels pretty unsustainable. At some point, something's got to give. Forty percent of their budget is going towards uh, the military at the moment in Russia. They can't. They, they don't have the the personnel to man the factories in which munitions are being built. I mean, it it feels like it's on a knife edge really there. And then you've got Ukraine on the other side who are kind of also on their knife edge. All these different psychodramas of politics playing out all around Europe and in the US. And are they still going to get the funding to keep this war going? And Putin's holding on, hoping to get a
1: Trump win. Chris, look, you understand the ins and outs of the European Union better than most of us. I'm really struck by what Chloe says about Viktor Orban coming to a Heritage Foundation or sending people to a Heritage Foundation event to obviously play in Budapest's view of what's happening in Ukraine. How do you read Europe's response to this overall? Is there a
0: division that's emerging? I think it's it's been there from the beginning, and it's beginning to come out into the open a little bit more. Perhaps it's not quite as stark as in the United States. But we all know the tough context here, which is that back in the spring, the conventional wisdom was that Ukraine needed to make make significant gains on the battlefield in order to prove that it was worth continuing to provide it with such huge financial and military aid. And we're now heading into winter. And despite its best efforts, there've been no decisive breakthroughs. And as Chloe said, Vladimir Putin is still Uh, shows no signs of of tempering his enthusiasm for sending tens of thousands of young men to the front. And I think the challenge, both in Europe and in the United States, but given the fact that we could be seeing President Trump 2.0, it's probably a bigger challenge in a way for Europe, how does it stand on its own, is that it takes me back to what Chloe said about President Assad in Syria, one of the great hard man survivors in the Middle East. A big reason why he survived is that Russia and Vladimir Putin came in and thought, we can win this war, and we can outlast the, West, the West's enthusiasm and determination to stay focused on Syria. And he thinks he can do the same thing in Ukraine, and he may be right.
1: Yeah, that point about outlasting is right, isn't it? Time these days seems to be on the side of dictators over Democrats. That's the thing you've got to worry about. Let's take a beat, and then I'm going to come to Chris Morris and Cop.
0: Let's assume that we all know that it's very important. What's the actual story? It depends. I think you've got to, just, you've got to decide which lens you want to look at that through. You know, in, in the UK, for example, if you take it from a British lens, you know, achieving net zero is not just an aspiration, it's the law of the land. And if we're going to phase out carbon as quickly as possible, which is kind of what this summit is about, then there has to be an honest debate about what that means and how it will be achieved. People need access to accurate information rather than spin. And it should be something, frankly, that gets discussed on every street corner, not just at summits in the desert, because it's about how you heat your home, what kind of car you drive, what kind of job you do, how you choose to travel, what you choose to eat. And this is just one of those moments where focusing on the slightly impenetrable politics of climate change is important for all those reasons. But hold on, Chris.
1: Sorry, sorry to be annoying. That's what I'm asking you, which is what is the actual story? If you were, you know, you know the way in which like the ten o'clock news works. You know the way in which the
0: front page of a newspaper works. You you need a story. What's the actual? Okay, so lead? so the story this week is, uh, can against all odds, countries around the world agree that they will phase out and not phase down fossil fuels. We know that that Saudi Arabia and other oil-producing countries have been fighting a rearguard action against that. And even if it were to be agreed, there will be plenty of caveats in the small print because phase out over what time period is obviously the second question. But even five years ago, the idea that there would be a serious debate among all the countries of the world about phasing out fossil fuels, not using them anymore keeping them in in the ground is pretty extraordinary. And of course you'll have climate scientists and they're right to do so saying none of this is being done quickly enough. But I don't think you can underestimate the fact that the politics always moves slower than the science and that this is not really about compromising on the science. It's about whether there can be a compromise in the politics. Uh, and, And so your story is the battle between, if you like, the phase downers and the phase
1: outers those people who want to commit to the removal of fossil fuels altogether and those people who say, in order to meet global energy demand, we're still going to need some oil and gas,
0: but we're going to reduce it significantly. That's, that's the exam question of COP. It's, it's about whether we can genuinely agree to phase out the use of fossil fuels quickly enough to make a difference to the warming of the world which has been caused by human activity. Uh, and I think that is a question which you can ask on the broad sense, and then in terms of a news story, you can narrow down into all sorts of narratives, not just about polar bears on ice caps or about orangutans in the rainforest, but about the practical impact on the daily lives of people, including, of course, a discussion about the cost of it and whether people can afford it in a, in a time when they are under huge press- pressure because of the cost of living crisis. Okay, There's Chloe. no point in those who care about climate change talking down to people about these issues, they need to include them in a conversation. Chloe, assuming you are editing a
1: news bulletin, Chris is saying, let's lead on, phase out of fossil fuels at COP. Is that top of the bulletin?
2: Well, I... I would like it to be because it is. He's absolutely right. It's the most important story going. And it's for some reason where we as news people are not putting, not giving it the prominence that it deserves, because in, in a sense, it's about whether or not the planet lives or dies. I mean, what's more important than that? How we're not getting it at the top of the news agenda is because it feels kind of remote. It doesn't feel like it relates to what's happening today. It doesn't feel immediate enough. I think with this particular summit, what's interesting for me is that UAE was hosting it, Azerbaijan's hosting the next one. These are nation states that have a massive vested interest in the fossil fuel industry. And I wonder whether the story should be, why is the West, who can see the danger far more clearly and professes to care about it much more, why they're not leading and saying, you know what, we're not going to wait for you. We're going to put, implement the changes. We're going to lead the way on this. But the, the thing that's slowing the whole thing down is that everybody needs to be on board. Why doesn't the West just say, well, we have the resources to lead on this. We're going to start changing our economies. We're going to make huge changes. And the rest of the world can see how we do it and follow suit.
1: I think there's an argument, one, that the Inflation Reduction Act has done that in the United States, investments in green tech. And the other point some people would make is, look, there's 7 billion people out there who need energy, and you need to make sure those people are part of the change. It's crazy not to. And some people also say you need to make sure that you have people who've got the vested interest around the table, otherwise there's no change that's ever going to happen. But maybe I'm... seeing it from the other side, Giles, what do you make of Chris's story? Would you lead on COP at the beginning of the week before we've had a resolution or before we've had clarity about what the negotiations have achieved?
3: No, I do think there are two big stories in the world. And we covered them both today. The, the war in Ukraine and the climate. We don't know yet, though, whether there's going to be any kind of agreement. I think the the, the story from COP28 may be the end of the COP process as the centre of the global debate on how to tackle climate change because, as you say, it requires pretty close to universal consensus to proceed on anything. You're not going to get that. You're just not going to get it. Mm. Uh, And meantime, and I am channeling the controversial but always um, lively, Ambrose Evans-Pritchard here, Mm. Uh, you've got such breakneck uh, developments in Chinese adoption of solar, world adoption of EVs, uh, and... Um, controversial technologies like direct air capture, that that could overtake what's being discussed, this very ponderous process?
1: Uh, I do think, I mean, Chris, for what it's worth, I think that point, Giles' point, which is it's not clear that multilateral cooperation is going to get us there as fast as national competition. And it may be that COP is not the place where the most important things are going to happen either this year or in the next few years when it comes to climate.
0: The answer is that you do both. I mean, you mentioned the the IRA and the United States. You know, Biden is putting billions and billions of dollars into transforming the economy and therefore encouraging businesses to invest in huge ways in green technology. And in terms of, I mean, Chloe's right, the UAE followed by Azerbaijan sounds a bit like a sick joke in terms of climate summits. But just as it's often hardliners who make peace after a long conflict, maybe if you want to get rid of fossil fuels you need to bring on board the people who produce them because if they're not part of the process, they do have the power to ensure it fails because even if the West goes green, it's not just about the fact that we produce more um, wind farms, we produce more solar panels. At the same time, we need to stop producing fossil fuels because they are doing damage to the environment around us. And I think you need to bring the two together. And I think the COP process dull as it is, and believe me, having covered the European Union for 10 years, I've sat through quite a few dull summits. But sometimes when you get the politicians together in one room, what they decide decide does feed into policy for years to come. I, I would say this, Chris, that the Europeans are better
1: at summit theatre than the UN is at COP. It's totally bewildering what's going on there. Anyway, let's, let's try and have a go at how we would run this particular news agenda on a day when, as we say, we're covering some of the biggest cultural stories, geopolitical stories, you know, fate of humanity and the planet stories. Chris, assuming that you can't choose your own, which of the two,
0: Ukraine or campus politics, would you lead with? I would lead with Ukraine, because while there's been enormous attention, and rightly so, on the Israel-Gaza conflict over the last two months, in the end, Ukraine uh, is certainly more important for for Europe, for British security, and I think for the future of the world in which we live in, in in the European continent. Chloe?
2: I would go with COP. I still think that we need to find ways of putting that story higher on our agenda as news people, and you know, this is a good opportunity.
1: You're being good, but you sure that people are gonna <laughs> read, watch or listen, who knows? Charles?
3: Ukraine. I think if you want a measure of how scary this feels for ukraine look at where zelensky is today he's in argentina there is nowhere he's not going to try and find
1: friends or right. for what it's worth i think i'd probably end up the same i went into this conversation thinking and being fascinated by what was happening in those big us colleges Partly because of cultural wars and arguments over history, but I think the right thing is to say you lead on Ukraine. It feels like a pivotal week and a week which will set the terms for 2024. I would then run as the second story, U Pen, because I do think that something profound is happening in. Uh, politics and uh, the culture of campuses. Uh, and even though I think that COP is as important as you say, Chris, I know that we're going to lead at the end of the week. And I also just don't think I know yet what the contours of the story are. I think there will be a story. I suspect it will be more along Charles's lines than yours, which it will be an agreement to phase down, not phase out and an argument about that. And with that, an argument about the effectiveness of COP. Um, and that will be a Big and compelling story, I suspect, at the end of the week. But with that, that would be the running order. Ukraine, campuses, COP. Um, for that, thank you very much. Um, Chris, it's really good to see you. Really appreciate you making the time. Uh, all Pleasure. best to you and uh, and what you're doing at Full Fact. Uh, Chloe Hadjimatho and Giles Wattel, thank you too. Thank you... Um, two for listening. If you've got a point of view on the stories we're choosing or the stories we've forgotten, do message us. It's newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. We got an email from a listener called Rachel, who got in touch after hearing Jess Winch talk about the evidence that Hamas had raped women on October the 7th. And here's what she wrote. Reports on October the 7th both told and showed us of the women with blood covering their pants. We all knew for people to suggest that we need proof is a bizarre reasoning worthy of 1984. It's to our shame that we ignored what happened to women on that day. The UN is certainly slow, and yet they decried what was happening to girls and women. It wasn't slow there. While I appreciate the tortoise media chose this to lead the news, please don't excuse two months of horrid behaviour on the part of the media. If you wonder why they ignored this, I advise you ask them. That was a note from Rachel on the conversation we had last week about the evidence of uh, rape of women and the failure of both of the media and of agencies uh, who campaign for women's rights and campaign against violence against women uh, to be so slow to follow up on that following the attacks of October the 7th. That's it for today. Giles is going to be back later in the week with another, another episode recorded here in our newsroom. I'll be back on Monday. And I leave you with the sound of a story that we haven't covered. Rishi Sunak defending eat out to help out in front of the COVID inquiry you wanted to bring about a change in behavior to encourage people, more people than had previously gone to restaurants the previous year, to encourage people to come together. That was part of the policy objective, was it not?
3: I think as you're describing it, they're they're one and the same. My My, my primary concern was protecting millions of jobs of particularly vulnerable people who worked in this industry. All the data, all the evidence, all the polling, all the input from those companies suggested that unless we did something, many of those jobs would have been at risk with devastating consequences for those people and their families. And that's why independent think tanks had recommended doing something like this. Indeed, other countries had done something like this because everyone was grappling with the same issue of how to ensure that those jobs are safeguarded because people return. And that was the primary driver for what we were doing.
2: Tortoise.